Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. The middle of chapter 29, page 377. He's discussing different things that can get into the way of a Jew's joy, worshipping with joy. And in this chapter he's discussing a person faces a, what he calls a clogging of the heart. There is the clogging of the mind, which he does not discuss here, which is when you feel totally out of it. It's like you don't relate to anything spiritual and godly and it's suddenly it becomes like a foreign language and you just feel completely alienated and it's foreign to you. But that's a very deep malady. That's not what he's discussing in this chapter. In this chapter he's discussing something that happens to all of us. And that is a clogging of the heart. Like, you know, you feel a certain... Your mind gets it. Your mind understands and processes it and understands and internalizes godliness. You understand it and it makes sense to you. You have no problem with it intellectually. But just emotionally, your heart is just clogged up. Your heart just... You don't respond, you don't, you don't feel inspired, you don't feel, you're not hungry. You lost your appetite. And, and he says that the source of this malady is there's an arrogance. When a person becomes smug, content, and arrogant, where we have an exaggerated sense of self. We all have a healthy sense of self, but we have an exaggerated sense of self. And therefore we believe and feel that we have to indulge our every urge and every instinct because if I want it, you know, you're very precious, we feel very precious in our own eyes, and therefore if I want it, I'm going to pursue it. Nothing is going to stop me. And and the feeling of entitlement. I deserve this and I should get this. And then you feel sorry and depressed or angry. Why? Why? Uh, and jealous. Why my life is not perfect. Or physically I don't have everything I, I think I should have. And I, uh, and my friend has. And so there's, there's an arrogance that... That um, clogs the heart and basically closes your heart to spirituality and to godliness, because the joy, the road to to joy, to spirituality through joy, when the heart is open, humility, when you don't have any exaggerated sense of self, and you, when you've come down to earth, when you put yourself in the right perspective, when you put your life in the right perspective. You know, you realize you have everything that you need. Whatever, God, whatever you have, whatever you need, you have. And you're very appreciative of what you have. And suddenly you see the, the beauty and everything that's around you. And, and the, 
you know, but when a person has totally unrealistic expectations and you have an exaggerated sense of self and suddenly you become miserable. Why are you so miserable? You should be very happy. You have every reason to be thankful and grateful. Instead of being thankful and grateful for what you have, you feel miserable. I deserve to have <laughs> the best, and I deserve... But if you were to really examine yourself honestly and, and realistically, why do you, you have exactly what you need? And who says you... But, you know, we have this... this it's, it's almost built into our system. A, a system, a culture, which is very egotistical and basically pushes us to have an exaggerated sense of self and it's a, very, it's a consumerism culture and therefore everyone deserves to have the best and the, and the richest and, the, and, the, uh, and therefore it's, it's um, instead of being content with, uh, materialistically content we become materialistically, materialistically re- restless. And we always feel what we're lacking, how much we're lacking. You see, spirituality is the exact opposite of materialism. What's an advantage, what's considered an advantage in spirituality is a disadvantage when it comes to materialism, and vice versa. What's considered a disadvantage, spirituality, when it comes to spirituality, is an advantage when it comes to materialism. When it comes to materialism... It says, a person should be happy with your lot. Don't be jealous of the other person. The other person is a multimillionaire. And I'm just paying my bills. So, <laughs> be grateful and thankful. You're paying your bills. Who says you have to, you need, you know, you need the... But everything in society is telling us, is pushing us to look at your fellow and feel empty and... and look how, how empty I am. Look, I'm missing this and I'm missing that and you're missing nothing. But the whole advertisement, the whole hype is yet to tell you how much you're missing because you deserve. You deserve the best. And therefore, therefore your life is miserable. So now I'm going to work 20 hours a day and I'm going to become a slave. And I'm not going to have time, a moment's breath to live and to really enjoy the reality that's right in front of me. So as long as I can... You know, we're pursuing a shadow, pursuing a false... So what's, what's, when it comes to our materialism, it says a person should be thankful and grateful and satisfied with your lot. Who is a rich person? Who is a rich person? Wealth is not defined how much you have in your bank account. Wealth is defined whoever is content, whoever is internally content, materialistically content, is the richest person. When it comes to spirituality, being content is a disadvantage. One should never be content. You should be jealous. Why, my friend is, is much deeper than I am, much more genuine than I am, gives more charity than I do. Studies a little more Torah than I do. Does more mitzvah. Is a kinder person. So when it comes to spirituality, you should always be hungry and restless and feel dissatisfied and humble. So what become, what's a disadvantage when it comes to spirituality? Being content when it comes to materialism is a great advantage. What's an advantage when it comes to spirituality? Being restless. Being soulful and restless and hungry and seeking and searching and 
yearning. When it comes to materialism, it's a tremendous disadvantage. A person is constantly restless and hungry and yearning and, and never has enough and feels empty and, and, and is trying to fill that emptiness by acquiring more possession. And that's a disadvantage. And it comes from the same reason. When a person is arrogant, when you have an exaggerated sense of self, I need this and I need that and I deserve this and I deserve that and I deserve the best. And therefore, if there's something in your life that's not perfect, or you think is not perfect, you, you think, I deserve the best, and therefore, you're not satisfied, you're not happy. So th- there's a closing of the heart. And when you have that closing of the heart, when you have that restlessness and that yearning, that hunger for materialism, that clogs up the spiritual heart. It clogs up, you stop yearning you stop hungering for spirituality and for godly things, for genuine things. And you become overbearing, you become arrogant. So, how does a person deal with the clogging of the heart? When the, when the blood stops flowing, when the spiritual life, life system stops flowing smoothly, and instead of feeling open-hearted and open and joyful and deep and meaningful and suddenly you feel spiritually you feel your heart is all clogged up you feel empty and spiritual empty and hollow and shallow and um, you stop pursuing spirituality and godliness and you spend all your energy in pursuing materialism indulgence or acquiring money power fame and therefore it dulls your spiritual life so what do you do with a dull heart you could be as vigorous as a lion when it comes to materialism, but when it comes to spirituality, you have a dull heart. There's no life. There's barely any pulse. There's no hunger. There's no... And the answer is, that's he's prescribing. This is an illness, a spiritual illness. He says, the way to deal with this illness is, what's the source of the illness? Let's get to the root cause of this illness. The root cause of this illness is arrogance. A to- complete, exaggerated sense of self. Like you're drunk on materialism. You're drunk on yourself. You're completely exaggerated. You have no clue, no sense of who you really are. Of course, were you to get objective feedback, honest feedback, people will tell you exactly the truth. You know, who you really are, and what's really going on. But of course, our eyes and we're clogged and we're closed and we're not listening. So we live in our own bubble. We create this psychotic reality and we become divorced and disconnected from reality. And we start imagining and start creating all sorts, exaggerating our sense of worth. So how do you deal with this? You're not dealing with anything substantial. This is not based on something genuine and a real argument. It's based on pure arrogance. It's delusionary. You're completely divorced from reality. Completely disconnected from reality. So what do you do when a person is drunk? You gotta slap him or slap him around. You gotta sober him up. You can't sit and discuss and argue this. He's completely delusional. So when a person has such an exaggerated sense of self, arrogance, pure arrogance, and the smarter the person is, the more they can cover up their own insecurities. And the arrogance is really is really a cover-up for insecurity. There's no substance behind it. It's not a person of substance. The Talmud says. A charity box that's full 
It's very quiet. A charity box that's empty, has two, three coins, boy, does it make noise. The real movers and shakers in society, the real people, the powers, they're very quiet, you don't even hear about them. The people who make noise are the, are the, are the, empty, the empty pushka that just make noise. If it's a person of substance, it's one thing, but most, most of the time, arrogance. People of substance are not arrogant. Arrogance is a cover-up for nothing, for insecurity. There's, no, there's not, nothing there, it's not substance. So it's, a, it's, it's castles in the ear, it's delusions upon delusions, so you can't take it seriously. You've got to nip it in the bud, and by nipping it in the bud, by dealing with the root cause, you have to, you have to undermine that arrogance. How do you undermine that arrogance when the person is delusional? How do you reach that person when the person is delusional? He's not listening, he's not open, he can't see himself honestly, objectively, truthfully, the way other people see. So how do you do that? Well, if no one's going to do you the favor, do yourself the favor. Insult yourself. Not your real self, but this false persona that you created. This arrogant, false persona that you created, that this bubble that you're living in, and, and you're making all these demands, these impossible demands, and you're making your life miserable. Because the truth is, God gives you everything that you need. So you have everything that you need. But I decided that I want and I need. And if I don't have it, my life is miserable. It's like a man-made misery. <laughs> you know, we did not suffer. If we did not have these exaggerated egos, 95, if not 99% of psychiatrists and psychologists would be out of business. Because we'd be happy human beings, well-adjusted, happy human beings. But we create our own misery. Because we live in our own shell, and we create our own bubble, and we create this exaggerated sense of self. We become arrogant, we become impassable, overbearing, totally alienated from our real self, our real down-to-earth, wholesome, innocent, good, loving, and lovable self. We become this overbearing, arrogant, impassable, demanding, needy, And the answer is not to play, not to play this game, but just nip it in the bud. Just go straight to the root cause. This arrogance has to be completely undermined. How do you undermine this arrogance? Insult yourself. No one likes to be insulted. So even a person who's unfeeling, who lost touch with any human feelings or real feelings, genuine feelings, but you can get insulted. And that's a genuine feeling. <laughs> no one likes to be insulted. So if no one's going to do you the favor, do it, to, do it to yourself. Because all you're insulting is you're insulting this false persona that you created. This delusion that's in front of you, that's blocking you, that's clogging you, that's not allowing you to breathe, it's not allowing you to live, it's not allowing you to yearn and to be open and to be humble and to be real and enjoy life and, and live. You were talking about three emotions two weeks ago. Anger, jealousy, and what was the third? And uh, indulgence. That's more an activity rather than a... person who's, who's you know, always yearning for uh, desire. You know, big eyes always wants more. And we live in a culture that actually, actually encourages it. It's the whole foundation of consumerism. Every advertisement is there to tell you no matter how blessed your life is, <laughs> you should feel miserable because you have nothing. <laughs> because you don't have that perfect, perfect uh, car, that perfect model, that perfect... 
if what, you, what God gave you and blessed you with, you feel miserable because you deserve the best. I am the best and I deserve the best. Of course, who defines what's the best? <laughs> but in a spiritual culture, in a, a real culture, in a genuine culture, a person is taught to enjoy and to count your blessings and to be grateful and thankful for you. Realize the blessing. And everything that you need is right in front of you. Because the thing is, what really matters is if you, can, if you love and you, are, and you are loved and you have your friends and family, I mean, that, that's the end of the day, that's all you need. Money, power, fame, that's not, that doesn't really matter. So you really have the happiest person. Happiness, all the money in the world can't buy happiness. And all the money in the world can't buy love. You can't force it. You can't impose it. You can have billions. Howard Hughes was the wealthiest person in, in, alive. He was the most miserable human being. He died a reckless. So you can't buy these things. You can't buy happiness and you can't buy love and you can't buy... You can't force it. You can't impose it. It's something that comes from within. If your heart is open and you're humble and you're grounded and you're content and you're satisfied and you're, then you're joyful. The joy is something that comes from within. Then you're happy, you're rooted, you're connected. Your life is meaning. Your life is substance. But when you create this artificial, external expectations, if I only will indulge in this, I'll be happy. If I only, if I had a fatter bank account, I'll be happy. If only I had a little more power, a little more respect, I'll be happy. But of course, it's, it's, it's a delusion. You can't buy respect. You can't even force it. Respect is something that comes when you're not looking. It's unselfconscious. When you're a genuine person, people respect you. When you lead a type of life that you earn that respect, people respect you. But you can't go looking for it. Because you'll never find it. People who try to buy respect. You know, all of these things are intangible. These things are elusive. It's not something external. It's something that comes from within. So your heart has to be open to it. When your heart is open. And you feel joyful. And then you feel connected. And then all of these things will come. All of these things that you want in life will come the things that really, really want and really matter, make life meaningful, will come. But when you try to force it, and your whole life is external oriented, your heart is clogged. The more you indulge and the more you pursue these external things, the more you define yourself by these external labels and titles, and the more empty you feel materialistically, and, and the more you just... Your soul, spiritually, you just feel, you just become more and more alienated from your spiritual self, from your real self. So the way to deal with clogging of the heart is dealing with the root cause, the arrogance that's fueling it. There's no substance there. You have to recognize it's no substance. It's just a cover-up arrogance, and the more arrogant, the more brilliant, the more arrogant the person is, it's just a cover-up for their own insecurity. And the deeper, the more delusional they become. 
And the answer is, is you have to insult yourself. By insulting yourself, then you can feel, you can have a genuine feeling. When you feel insulted, that's a genuine feeling. So your heart, you finally have one genuine feeling. And once, once you, it brings you down to earth. There's nothing wrong with destroying delusions. Because you can't build a life based on delusions. You can build a life based on substance. But playing along with delusions, telling a child, oh, you're wonderful, and the child didn't do anything. Well, why are you so wonderful? You do something wonderful, you're wonderful. But creating, telling, you know, people have gone overboard with this um, positive. The person is always positive, no matter what you do. Always positive. You know, there's never any reality. There's never any realism. You know, a person has to have a little humility. A person has to have, be able to see himself honestly and objectively the way other people see person has to have a little reality. Honesty. You can't build anything without honesty. So if you can't be honest with yourself, just creating castles in the air and calling that progress, <laughs> you know, well, I'm positive and I feel great. What are you feeling? What's, what's your, what, what are you feeling? What are you feeling positive? What did, did you accomplish anything? Did you do anything? Did you try to do anything? No. It doesn't matter. You know. It has, to be, it has to be some honesty. Honest. And when a person has honest feeling, the foundation is humility. The foundation is then your heart is open. When your heart is open. Then you can feel joy. A joy that comes from within. Then you can feel connected. A connection that comes from within. Then you can feel love and beloved with something that comes from within. Nothing external. So this is the recipe. This is the medicine that he's giving for this particular illness, which is called the clogging of the heart, the spiritual clogging of the heart, when we become totally out of touch with ourselves, totally out of touch with reality. And, um, of course, the first symptom is we lose our appetite. We lose our hunger, spiritual hunger. The first sign of illness is loss of appetite. And we become content in a grotesque way, spiritually content and satisfied. Materialistically, is the opposite. We feel restless, and we feel angry, and we feel jealous, and we, and when and we we feel, you know, it's never enough. And and even though you you were blessed, your life is blessed. You have everything that you need, and yet you feel completely lacking, and and angry, and ungrateful, and and sorry for yourself. Feeling sorry for yourself. But this is the recipe that he's giving for, uh, for this clogging of the heart. On top of page, uh, let, you know, let's continue on the bottom of 376, the cause of this deficiency. The cause of this deficiency is the arrogance of the klipa of the animal soul, which exalts itself above the holiness of the light of the divine soul, so that it obscures and darkens its light. Therefore, one must crush it and cast it down to the ground. Just as in the previously quoted analogy, the beam is splintered so that it will catch fire. Quoted the Zohar earlier that if there's a thick piece of wood that's not catching on fire, so the answer is not to pour more kerosene. The answer is to break up the wood into a thousand splinters. So too with the heart. When the heart is clogged, the heart no longer responds to anything spiritual. 
You lost that, that hunger, that yearning. You lost that humility. And you feel completely satisfied and content. And you're feeling miserable. You're feeling miserable for all the wrong reasons. You're feeling miserable because you're lacking... You feel that you're lacking... Suddenly you feel that you're lacking this and you're lacking that. Materialistically you feel unsatisfied with your lot and unsatisfied with what you have. So the answer is not to study more Torah, do more mitzvot, because that light is not penetrating. The heart is clogged. What do you do when the heart is clogged? You need to... You need open heart surgery. You need to break through that, that clogging. So the answer is, you have to break your heart into a thousand pieces. There's nothing more whole than a broken heart. When the heart is broken, that's healthy. It means the heart is alive. The heart is, the heart is functioning. The blood is circulating. You feel connected. You feel love. You feel the ability to love. The ability to, to, you feel beloved. You feel the ability to connect. You feel that yearning, that hunger for spirituality. And then you become grateful and thankful for all your materialistic blessings. Then everything comes into perspective. You feel centered. You feel focused. Everything falls into place. And you have everything that you need. And you, then you, you get in touch with the reality, your reality, your own reality. You become firmly grounded. Then you can build your life on something genuine and a solid foundation. You can't build a life based on delusion. No one is doing you any favors by constantly pumping you with delusions. You're the wonderful, you're the best, you're the greatest. There never was anyone like you. Did you accomplish anything? Did you do anything? Did you trying to do anything? It doesn't matter. I don't have to do anything. You know, you're not, you can't build a life based on false, false premises. Because then it turns into ugliness. When your heart becomes clogged and your blood, your spiritual blood stops circulating, you can become a very ugly human being. Arrogant, unbearable, so selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed that you destroy everyone in your path. You have no time and no energy for anyone outside yourself. So you're robbing yourself of of all the love that's around you, all the goodness that's around you, all the opportunities that's around you. Because you basically walled yourself off from everyone and created this, this artificial bubble and you're living in some psychotic wonderland that's completely not satisfying because the more you indulge, the more you rob yourself of the, even the ability of, of enjoying. You know, the person who just indulges ultimately loses his ability to enjoy life. And becomes a, you become a bitter, harsh, bitter, cynical, jaded human being. So you're not doing, you're not doing yourself a favor. And no one is doing you a favor by, by pumping you and, and encouraging you in your delusions. To live life, you have to be in touch with reality. You have to have a, a genuine foundation. And the genuine foundation is there's nothing more whole than a broken heart. When your heart is broken, then your heart is in touch. When you're spiritually, when your heart is crushed, but crushed for all the right reasons, all you're crushing is the arrogance, the foolishness. What remains is now you're in touch with reality. Now you can feel again. Now you can love again. Now you can connect again. Now you feel that hunger, that appetite returning that hunger for some spirituality, for some godliness, for something genuine, for something real. 
then you can you can continue. The Alter Rebbe now proceeds to explain how this is accomplished. He points out that the personality of the Benoni is his animal soul. When a Benoni says I, he is referring to his animal soul. Thus, by crushing his own spirit, he crushes the Sitra Achra and thereby enables the light of the soul and intellect to penetrate himself. This means that one must crush the Sitra Achra and cast it to the ground by setting aside appointed times for humbling oneself and considering himself despicable and contemptible, as it is written. Now, a broken heart leads to a broken spirit, the spirit being the Sitra Achra, which in the case of Benonim is the very man himself. For in his heart, the vital soul which animates the body is in its full strength as it was at birth. Hence, it is indeed the very man himself. Although we learn that the, our essence is really our divine soul, the divine spark, that is really our essence. That's the core, that essence of our being. And even we don't have the freedom of choice to destroy or to diminish that part within us. Because that's divine. There are no human fingerprints in it. We did not put it inside of us and we can't take it away from us. We can't remove it. We're born with it. It's innate. It's inherent. But nevertheless, on the conscious level, we're not, we're not conscious. We don't feel this divine essence. Were we to feel this divine essence, we would all be godly and selfless and kind and good and loving, but we're not. Consciously, we sense our egos. That is who we are, predominantly. That's, what, that's familiar with, to us. That's what we recognize. That's instinctive to us. So our ego feels very natural to us. Godliness feels unnatural to us. It's something we have to learn, we have to acquire through education, through awareness, higher levels of awareness, of consciousness, but this is, this is not our natural self. Naturally, our egos feel a lot more natural to us than, than do our souls on a conscious level. So although the truth is that the, the, our essence is godly, and whenever we live and do something godly, we're really being consistent with our true nature and true essence, but on the conscious level, it's a struggle. On the conscious level, it feels something foreign or alien or something above us or beyond us. It doesn't feel as natural as something, something, something um, um, uh, uh, materialistic. So he says, so when you insult yourself, you're insulting yourself here is referring to not your real self, the divine spark that's within you. Yourself here means your conscious self, your ego self. So putting your ego in place, when the ego gets out of hand, when the ego becomes so egotistical and so arrogant that it becomes impossible and overbearing, then you have to put your ego in place. By insulting yourself. Who are you insulting when you're insulting yourself? You're insulting your ego. Your overbearing ego. Your, your excessive ego. And that's a healthy thing. That's a very healthy thing. So what's the sitra achra? Is it like the other side. The other side. There's holiness, and then there's the other side. Ego, arrogance, the opposite, the opposite of holiness, which is humility, the acknowledgement of Hashem. Ego, I, is the opposite of the other side. It's the opposite of holiness. So to put your ego in place, that's a very, very, a very healthy thing. He's not talking about crushing the person. In, in crushing the healthy person. He's talking about crushing the 
the excesses, the arrogance, the, the overbearing ego, that you can crush. And that's a very healthy thing. Okay. With regard to the divine soul within him, it is said, the soul which you gave within me is pure. The word within me cannot be understood as referring to the body alone. The body cannot speak for itself as a complete man. Thus, it must refer also to the animating soul. Therefore, the words, which you gave me within me, imply that the man himself who is saying these words is not identified with pure soul, i.e. the divine soul is the thing apart which has been placed within this me, the body and animal soul, except in the case of tzaddikim. The human condition is that for most of us, the I, which is our ego, is not identified with our soul. Our soul, our divine soul, is something other other than our I. It feels otherworldly. It feels something beyond. But our natural I, our natural self, is egotistical. That's our natural self. So that's what we say every morning in the prayer that God, you have placed in me, in me refers to my ego self, you've, you've introduced into my ego self a higher dimension, a higher reality, that soul which is pure, which is a piece of the divine essence. But we feel as if it's something that's, that's introduced to me, it's something that's added to me. It doesn't feel as natural as, as, as our ego materialistic soul feels. That feels completely natural to us. Except with the exception of a tzaddik. The tzaddik, the tzaddik is just the opposite. The tzaddik, his nature is, his divine soul, he completely identifies with his divine soul. That feels natural to him. Ego feels completely unnatural. Ego, money, power, fame, external, superficial, all of that feels completely unnatural to him. Materialism, per se, feels completely unnatural. The only thing that feels natural to him, as much as materialism feels natural to us, to the tzaddik, godliness and spirituality and kindness and selflessness, that feels natural to him, like the air he breathes. So for the tzaddik, he is completely identified with his soul. That He is his soul, even on a conscious level. On a subconscious level, we're all like the tzaddik. We all have the tzaddik inside of us. We all have the divine spark. That's our core, that's our essence. But on a conscious level, we don't identify with it. It's otherworldly. It's something that's above us, beyond us. Something we have to struggle with. For the tzaddik, however, the tzaddik, his subconscious is, is, has been completely revealed. His subconscious and his conscious have completely merged. That becomes his identity. That is who he is. That is his eye. His eye is godliness. While our eye, realistically and honestly, is, 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 not, is not godliness. Ego. And godliness is something something external. With them, the contrary is true. The man himself is the pure soul, i.e. the divine soul, while their body is called the flesh of man, secondary to the man himself, the divine soul. It was in this sense that Hillel the Elder would say to his disciples when he went to eat that he was going to do a favor to the lowly and poor creature, meaning his body. He regarded his body as a foreign thing and therefore used this expression that he was doing it a favor by giving it food, for he himself was nothing other than the divine soul. 
It alone animated his body and flesh, inasmuch as in Sadiqim the evil that was in the vital soul pervading their blood and flesh has been transformed into good and completely absorbed into the holiness of the divine soul. And thus, the divine soul is the man himself. The actual meaning of what Hill said was actually that he was going to do a favor when he went to eat. He said, I'm going to do a favor to the poor person. I'm going to give charity. And he literally meant his soul. He's going to give, give charity to the soul. But there Hillel was speaking in the name of the entire Jewish people. But when Hillel would eat for himself, when he's speaking to his own students who are on his own level, to his own level, it's just the opposite. That he considered it a charity that he's feeding the body. Because the body was like someone knocking on the door. The body is hungry. The body has to survive. The body needs to eat. So I have no choice. I have to, a poor person is knocking on my door. I have to take care of him. So here, let me interrupt what I'm doing and let me feed this poor, poor, poor person. And that's how he felt when it comes to himself or his students, which are on his level. To them, the act of eating was like taking care of a stranger. That's not me. That's not what my life is about. That's not how I define myself. I don't live for food. I don't live for eating for that central experience or luxuriate in the pleasures of food, indulge in the pleasures of food. That's not what his life is about. I live for godliness. I can't wait to study more Torah, to do more mitzvah, to do more good deeds. That's my life. That's how I define myself. That's my whole life. That's the air I breathe. But uh, my body is calling. I, you know, I, in order to survive, the poor man is knocking on the door. I have to take care, I have to take care of my body. So I'm going to feed, feed my body. So that's how he felt. But that's the tzaddik. That's the one or two in every generation. That's the rear, the rear individual. But with the Benoni, however, top of 379. With the Benoni, however, since the substance and essence of the vitalizing animal soul stemming from the Sitra Achra, which pervades his blood and flesh, has not been transformed into good, it indeed constitutes the man himself. And therefore, by crushing his own spirit, the Benoni actually crushes the Sitra Achra. The Alter Rebbe now proceeds to suggest various lines of reasoning that the Benoni may use in order to humble and crush his spirit, and thereby the Sitra Achra of his animal soul. The first of these follows from the point just concluded, that the personality of the Benoni is, in fact, an expression of the Sitra Achra, the animal soul. Again, we're not talking about crushing the person, crushing the personality, suppressing the person and the personality. On the contrary, it says when the body is strong, the soul is weak. When the soul is weak, the body, um, when, the, when the soul is strong, the body is weak. We don't mean the physical body. Here we're not talking about the personality, to crush the personality, God forbid. But he's talking about crushing the arrogance. Because the klipa, the shell, the sitracha, the other side, there is no real substance to it. What does it represent? It represents a delusion. It represents, it paints a picture of a reality which is completely off the mark. That somehow, by indulging or by fulfilling your life externally, if only I have money, power, fame, and if only I was able to indulge in every whim, in every desire, in every urge, in every instinct, I'll be happy. That's pure delusionary. 
There's not a shred of truth to it. It's literally a pack of lies. So what are you crushing here? You're crushing that delusion. There's no advantage in maintaining delusions. And as long as a person maintains the delusions, you crush your real spirit. Your real true self, your real spirit. That joyful spirit that we're all born with. That spirit cannot emerge as long as you're living in this bubble, in this psychotic reality that you've created, this castle, castle in the year, castle in the year. But, but when you crush this delusion, then the soul emerges. Now the soul can emerge in its, all its glory and all its strength. So you have to be careful of the wording. It's not, it doesn't mean crush the spirit, crush the personality, crush the individuality. No, it means crush these delusions. As long as a person has this exaggerated sense of self and is so content in a grotesque way and so satisfied with themselves spiritually and is so selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed that you become completely blind, deaf and dumb to anything truthful and real and genuine, even to your own truths. You become completely alienated with your own truth, with your own genuine nature. And your heart is just all clogged up and the blood is not circulating. You're barely alive. There's hardly any pulse left. You're spiritually dead. And you become hardened, bitter, shallow, overbearing, impossible to live with, impossible to deal with. So how do you help? And the person can help himself. The person is trapped. He's trapped in this, in this, in this bubble you created. It's artificial bubbles. You're not doing a person a favor by trying to tell them everything is okay. It's not okay. How do you help the person release himself from this trap that he's created? So you have to crush this superficial shell. The heart is encased. Plaque. You have spiritual plaque. It's not allowing the blood to circulate. You're dying. Spiritually. So how do you get rid of the plaque? You have to destroy the plaque. Don't negotiate with the plaque and don't pat it. And don't, it's, it's, it's dangerous. This plaque is dangerous. This plaque is killing you. So you have to crush. You have to crush it. By crushing the heart and crushing through the plaque, breaking through the plaque and allowing the blood to flow, the blood to flow. Feel alive again. Really alive. Genuinely alive. Spiritually alive. Feel grounded, connected, uplifted. So this is a healthy thing. All you're crushing is the plaque, the garbage, the junk, the dirt that's accumulated. That's what you're crushing. The artificial bubble you've created. That's what you have to crush. So it all begins by, by crushing that arrogance, that exaggerated sense of self. And he begins, step number one, why are we so taken with ourselves? We're so proud of ourselves, so taken with ourselves. He says, a person, our ego nature, which feels so natural to us, has very unhealthy and self-destructive desires. So step number one, why are you so, why are you so taken with yourself? By that fact alone, you're the most miserable creature walking on God's face, on God's earth. 
Did you ever meet an animal that suffers from addiction? Did you ever meet an animal that overeats, overdoses, over drugs, over, over sexes, over... Animals don't suffer from these addictions. Only a human being has these, these urges and tendencies for self-destructive behaviors. For very ugly self-destructive behaviors. So why, why are you so taken with yourself? Relax. If you want to look at yourself honestly and objectively, potentially you're the most miserable creature walking on the face of the earth. Look at all these unhealthy tendencies and excesses that you have within you. You don't know when to stop. An animal eats and it stops. Period. It bonds once or twice a year and it stops. A person has this insatiable appetite. And you destroy yourself in the process. You don't know when to end. So why are you so taken with yourself? <laughs> Look at yourself in the mirror. You know, it's like that zoo in, the, in Washington. They have uh, the uh, one room. And the sign says, the world's worst animal. The most destructive right, animal. Right, most destructive animal. Destructive. destructive. Oh, that's yeah, the word. They, they did use the word destructive. Yeah, the world's most destructive animal. And, and you walk in, and there's a mirror, wall, <laughs> ceiling to floor mirror, full wall mirror. You look at yourself, that's it. You know, no, the worst animal in the world. Animals don't blow themselves up. Animals don't go, you know, I mean, the worst animal in the world wouldn't do what people do. The excesses and the self-destructiveness and the... It's sort of the inhumanity, too. Inhumanity. Uh, animals don't have inhumanity, you know, that's... Well, you have predatory animals. <laughs> but they're eating. Yeah, yeah. Most cases, yeah, okay. they're right. eating. Right, you know? right. right. There's a purpose. <laughs> but the... Animals have no freedom of choice. Mm-hmm. They're just right. being, being an animal. That's right. the best he can do. But when a human being... But the fact that a human being has urges, and even if you don't carry out these urges and instincts, but the mere fact that you have all these unhealthy urges and instincts, these self-destructive tendencies... Be embarrassed. Be ashamed. Why are you walking around as if you're, you're, you deserve everything and you're the best and the greatest? And this, it puts you in perspective. A little humility. Hide your face a little. So it, it undermines this arrogance, this exaggerated sense of self. We overappraise the value. You need, you need to undermine a little the value. Uh, an insurance agent was telling us, that he says, there's a huge difference when you want to buy insurance or when you want to sell your insurance policy. When you want to buy insurance, the company says, buy insurance. He's going to die tomorrow. <laughs> so the price, you know, they try to make it the highest, the highest premium. When it comes to selling a policy, he's in a deathbed. Oh, he's going to live another 14 years. <laughs> what's, what's the policy? How can I, what's the policy worth today? You know, it's all a matter of perspective. You can exaggerate one, exaggerate the other. So when a person has this exaggerated sense of self, <laughs> let's deflate it a little. Come on, let's, let's put your life into perspective a little. Put yourself into perspective. You're so taken with yourself, and you're so proud of yourself, and you're so arrogant, and, and you're the center of the universe, and you're this, well, well, you're the most miserable creature in the universe. You forgot about that mind of detail. The fact that you have inside of you, you have these unhealthy desires, which animals don't have. You have these unhealthy desires, self-destructive desires, these tendencies. Be ashamed of yourself. Little humility. Where is this arrogance coming? So that's step number one. Okay. 
if so that he is actually the animal soul, he is removed from God with the utmost remoteness. For the lusting drive in his animal soul is capable of lusting also after forbidden things which are contrary to God's will. While he does not desire to do them, these forbidden things, in actual practice, God forbid, yet they are not truly repulsive to him as they are to tzaddikim, as explained above in chapter 12. So he explained earlier that even though during prayer, even the benini, or at least some benini, has the ability to be on the level of the tzaddik, that at least during prayer, he gets a rest from the struggle. During prayer, he can sense godliness on a conscious level. That's the purpose of prayer. You feel centered, you feel focused, you connect, and you feel godliness. And therefore, during prayer at least, you're not even tempted to do the wrong thing. Not only don't you do the wrong thing, you're not even tempted, and you're tempted to do the right things. At least during prayer, you, you, you're... Your feelings, and on a conscious level, you also feel, feel godliness. But what happens right after prayer? Right after prayer, you revert back to your good old self. And once again, those urges and those instincts come roaring back to life. Because during prayer, all you did was you anesthetized, you put them to sleep. So you injected, you gave it a good anesthesia, so your animal soul, your ego went to sleep during prayer. The moment you finish prayer, it comes roaring back to life. So the fact that you have this inside of you, and you can't help yourself, that you have these urges and these instincts and these tendencies. So you don't feel guilty for having them. It's not in your control, but don't be so taken with yourself. <laughs> Why this arrogance? I wouldn't, I wouldn't parade it in public, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't make a parade, and I wouldn't go announcing it. Just, why are you so taken with yourself? Why are you so... A little shame, a little humility. There, the Alter Rebbe explains that after his prayers, when the love of God is no longer revealed in his heart, a Benoni can feel a craving for material pleasures, whether they be permitted or forbidden, except that in the case of forbidden matters, he does not actually wish to implement his desires in forbidden actions. They remain instead in the category of sinful thoughts. In this, He is inferior to and more loathsome and abominable than unclean animals and insects and reptiles, as mentioned above, for even they do not transgress against God's will. See chapter 24. And since he does do so, in his mind at least, he is worse than they. They do not even have a desire to go against the will of God or the way God created them, their instincts, the way God programmed them. So much so, as we discussed earlier in chapter 24, that even predatory animals, as in Daniel in the lion's den, predatory animals will go against their nature when they sense God's presence. A God-fearing person, a righteous person, whose name of God is written over his forehead, they sense the presence of God. So when they sense the holiness of someone like Daniel, they went against their instinct and didn't touch. So you see, even animals cannot go against God. So the fact that a person, even if actually you won't carry out and you'll have a discipline not to actually go ahead and think the wrong thought or say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. But the mere fact that you have this, te- this temptation, the mere fact that you have these temptations and you have these urges and instincts and desires, you have this sickness inside of you, I wouldn't be so proud. And that sense, you're the worst of all creatures. That's why it says man was created last. Why was man created last? 
in, in, in creation. If man is the most important, if man is the purpose of creation, why was man created last? And the answer is, if a person fulfills his purpose of creation, then the whole world is created for you, and you elevate the whole world, so man is created last. But if you don't live up to your divine potential, Adam, the first man who's created Adam. What does Adam mean? Adam can mean one of two things. Either it means Adam, a reflection from above. Man is created in the image of God. So when the person lives up to his potential, then there's no one greater than man. Man has the ability to elevate and transform the entire universe. Only man has that ability. Because we have that freedom of trust. On the other hand, Adam also comes from the word Adam, earth. When a person is created from earth, the lowest of all four elements, the four basic elements, earth, uh, water, liquid, um, gas, wind, and fire, energy. So man was created from earth. Animals were not created from earth. Animals were created, the body and the soul came out of the earth fully, fully fledged. They were created together. Man was created the clay. And then God breathed into his nostril, he breathed the soul. So his body is lower than the animal, and his soul is greater than the angel. Because God spoke and the world came into being. Heaven and earth. So God created the, wor- the world through speech. Blowing signifies something that comes from within. That's why you can speak and speak and you don't tire. But when you blow, you, because you're blowing from within, you can't continue to blow. So his soul is even superior to the angel. But his body is lower than, than the animal. And man is one extreme or the other. If a person lives up to his potential, he's created in the image of God, he's a reflection of God, and he's the only creature in the whole universe. Angels don't have freedom of choice, animals don't have freedom of choice. He's the only creature in the whole universe that has freedom of choice, and he exercises it properly, and he chooses well. There's no one greater than man. The whole world is created for you. And you have the ability to elevate the whole universe. On the other hand, if you don't live up to your potential, then you are the lowest of the law. You're like earth. Then, then you are the lowest creature in, in God's universe. So the fact that a person has freedom of choice is because a person can reach to the highest level. But the fact that we have this negativity inside of us, we have these two extremes, and we have urges for self-destructive behavior, and we have negative tendencies, that alone is something that I would not be, be too proud about or boast about. That puts me on the bottom of the totem pole bottom of the ladder so why am I so taken, taken with myself why am I so arrogant I deserve this and I deserve that and I need this and I want this and I, 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 I want and need and want and deserve and, and if I don't have it I'm miserable and I'm relax put yourself in perspective I need and I want and I deserve you're the lowest of the low you're the most miserable creature in God's, God's universe why, why are you so taken with yourself? Why are you so arrogant? A little humility. Put yourself into perspective. When you put yourself into perspective, you relax. You come down to earth. And then you open your eyes. And you see the blessing. And you're grateful for the blessing. And you feel joyful. And when you're joyful, there are many possibilities. When the person is open and is joyful, there are endless possibilities. Okay, and he brings uh, proof. And as it is written, but I am a worm and not a man, 
As a human being who chooses to lower himself to the level of a worm, I am worse than a worm, for it is a worm by creation rather than by choice. So here he's trying to bring a proof that a person is worse off than an animal. So he brings a verse that says, I am like a worm. So at least I'm not worse than the worm. I am like a worm. He says, no. When a person is like a worm, of course he's worse than the worm. Because a worm, being a worm, well, that's all a worm can do. That's what a worm was created for, to be a worm. But a person was not created to be a worm. A person was created to be a person, a human being. When a person behaves like a worm and acts like a worm, then you're much worse off than the worm. So the fact that you have these urges and instincts and desires, to, to these unhealthy desires, these sick desires, then that makes you worse than, than the worm. And think uh, position-wise how low a worm is. I mean, it's really under the ground, too. Right. It's not a, right. That's, why, that's why he's using that example, right? But what of the times when the divine soul of the Benoni dominates him, such as during prayer, when he experiences a revealed love of God and there's no room in his heart for any mundane desires? To this, the Alter Rebbe answers, Even when his divine soul gathers strength within him to arouse his love of God during prayer, this predominance of the divine soul is not altogether genuine, since it is transient and vanishes after prayer, as mentioned earlier, end of chapter 13. Even though he explained there that the Benini has his truth, because the fact that he can repeat this each and every day, he can recreate, he can pray each and every day and recreate this state of being, in which, on a conscious level, he, the animal soul, the ego, is dormant and he puts it to sleep and it doesn't bother him during prayer. But the fact is, the truth is, genuine truth is, something that's permanent. Permanent transformation. The Bainini, there cannot be a permanent transformation. So you'll always have to struggle. And therefore, even during prayer, it's not ge- really genuine. For, for his level, it's the best that he can do, and therefore it's, it's a reflection of something genuine. It's a taste of something genuine. But it's not the real mukoy. It's not the real thing. Because even during prayer, he knows that immediately after prayer, he's going to revert back. As soon as the anesthesia wears off, he'll come roaring back to life. So it's not a genuine transformation. So that urge and instinct, that negative urge and self-destructive urge and instinct, that ugliness that we have within us, that's going to remain. And you know that even during prayer, it's going to remain. It's just asleep for a little while, a short while. So therefore, knowing that, so you don't have, you're not on that level, you're not on that, on that genuine level. So again, so why are you taking with yourself? Since this is who you really are, the Benini, this is who you really are on a conscious level. What feels natural to us is our ego, is our natural self, our egotistical self. And our egotistical self has urges and instincts. We have an urge to do something which is the, exa- the opposite of what's healthy and wholesome and godly and divine and true and genuine. And we have these unhealthy, self-destructive tendencies inside of us. So why, so what are, you, why are you so taken with these? Why are you so arrogant? Why are you, why are you so self-absorbed? You should be a little, humil- a little humility. Be a little ashamed, a little embarrassed. And be grateful and thankful for whatever you have. Whatever you have is more than you deserve. <laughs> you imagine advertisement oh, you don't need this you don't need that <laughs> be grateful be thankful for what you have country we out of business <laughs> you know you have already 30 sweaters not enough you have to have that 
100 uh, pairs of shoes, things you never use, you never need. Um, but, but again, it's, it's the arrogance that's behind it. The arrogance that's feeling it. I need and I want and this. And you're making yourself miserable. For what? What are you making yourself miserable for? Be grateful, be thankful. Why are you miserable? You're alive, you're healthy, you're well, you're surrounded by loved ones. What, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do you need? The Alter Rebbe explained there that only that which is permanent and unchanging can be described as true. Relative to the rank of Benoni, this arousal of the divine soul during prayer may be considered truthful, since the Benoni is capable of generating it always, whenever he prays. It cannot, however, be described as absolutely truthful, emet amito, since it is not constant, occurring only during prayer. Especially so if he calls to mind the contamination of his soul with the sin of youth and the blemish he has wrought thereby in the supernal worlds, the source of his soul. The fact that they were sins of youth belonging to a time and to a spiritual level from which he may presently be far removed is irrelevant in these supernal worlds where everything is timeless. And it is as if he had caused the blemish and defiled himself this very day, God forbid. He's calling it um, sins of youth, crimes of passion, um, because this... This may be something that you outgrow quicker than other passions. The passion for money, the passion for power. Um, you know, even older people that perhaps they've outgrown their uh, youthful indiscretions, but they still lust after power with, <laughs> with a tremendous... Uh, zeal and zest and are ready to spend billions for their power. Um, so that's something that doesn't diminish with, with age, with time. Um, it takes a lot of wisdom for a person to realize, as King Solomon said at the end of his life, that it's all, it's all empty, it's all meaningless. That, you know, the, only the wisest man who has experience at the peak, who's been on top of the world, and experience the peak of power and fame and money and everything, a thousand wives. And he can say it's all hevel, havolim, it's all empty, hollow, shallow, empty, meaningless. There's nothing there. Um, but it takes a person a lot of wisdom and experience to make, come to that realization that life is not about power and life is not about money. But the excesses of youth the youthful passions of crime, uh, sexual excesses, is something that a person could realize a lot quicker um, than he does uh, realize the other excesses of life. Um, so when a person wisens up and realizes that there's no substitute for the real thing, no substitute for love and for relationship and family and, and uh, all the indulgence of the world cannot give you the satisfaction that you're really looking for and it's really a dead end and there's nothing there but in the youthful indiscretions we do things that um, later on later on we regret and when a person is sowing his wild oats 
And um, so when a person reminds himself of the foolishness of youth, the excesses and the things that we did in our youth, so even though we've outgrown it, we've already matured, we're wisened, we've outgrown it, if we have, when we have, um, but nevertheless, everything that we do in this world has an impact, an effect, above, in the spiritual realm. We don't live in a vacuum. Everything we do has an impact. Every thought that we have, every emotion, every attitude, our attitudes even, everything that we speak, everything that we do, everything we do has an impact. Registers. Creates a certain energy. Has, has an effect. Creates a positive thing or creates a scar. Emotional, psychological, spiritual. Everything has an impact. And in heaven... It's beyond time. Is a different a different time frame than ours. Just like they use a human analogy. They did a study. You know, every piece of junk food <laughs> that we ate as a child. When I was a child, I didn't know what I was doing. It was before we became aware and become and we became educated. We educated ourselves and realized the junk and the poison that we that we're feeding ourselves each and every day. Yeah, 30 years ago, people didn't know. So, but nevertheless, the body doesn't forgive and doesn't forget every piece of garbage, piece of junk food that we ate. registers, has an impact. They did a study. Children who grew up eating healthy fruits and vegetables and eating good stuff, wholesome food, 20, 30, 40 years later were healthier. The body doesn't forgive and doesn't forget. But I was unaware. I was a child. I was immature. Okay, fine. But you ate that poison. And that poison is there. So, but here he's saying in a spiritual level, everything that we do registers and impacts. And that doesn't go away. That remains. That's there. Because in heaven it's a different sense of time than we have. Time is, 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 it's not the time as we know it. Even in the level where there is time, it's a different time. A moment of there, up there is like, it's like 30 years in this world. That's the concept of divine inspiration, a tzaddik, a holy person, who reached a higher level of consciousness, he's able to know today what's going to happen in 30 years from now. Not necessarily because of prophecy, because God is communicating to him, but because he's in tune with a different frequency, a different level of time, where time happens much quicker. And then time time uh, as it translates into our dimension it takes its time and it happens over a longer, longer period of time. Just like for example every thought that you think you can think something for five minutes but something that takes you five minutes to think will take you 25 minutes to speak. So, Because speech is a lower frequency than thought. So in, in speech you need a lot more words, you need a lot more time to say the same concept that in thought, which is a higher frequency and a more intimate and closer to the soul, happens much quicker. So the, the higher you get, the quicker, the quicker it takes. It's the same idea, but just when it's projected into a lower dimension, it takes much slower. You know, it's like you speak slower and everything ha- happens in a much slower level. It's the same thing. So you can have a visionary, a visionary sees something. And he can see something that's going to unfold the next hundred years. You know, but it takes his vision to unfold, takes a hundred years, but he already sees it. It's already happening. It happened already. In, in his world, it already happened. The vision is there. The, the, the tide has turned. Maybe it'll take you a hundred years to see what he meant and see how the tide has turned. But 
it's already happened. And that level had already happened. Now it's just playing out and just the details, but it's there already. So in a higher world, a moment in a higher world, anything that happens in this world, since it affects a higher world, a moment there can last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So an indiscretion, a youthful indiscretion that we did, sexual youthful indiscretion that we did in our childhood, can have a tremendous effect and impact and leave a lasting impression for decades and decades later. Even though in this plane, in this physical plane, maybe we've outgrown it and we've, we've uh, wisened ourselves to it, but the impact is still there. The negative impression, that scar, still remains. And we have to deal with it. And so therefore, you have to take into account, you have to remember, take, look at the bigger picture. Look at yourself. Think back to your humble beginnings. So maybe now you're okay. Maybe now you're on a good path and you're a healthy, wholesome path and you're mature and you're wise. But how about all youthful indiscretions? That's us. It's part of us. We did it. It made an impact in heaven, the universe. And that impact is here. Till today. It has an effect. A negative effect. So why are we taking with ourselves? Why are we so arrogant and impossible and... uh, We'll continue next week, please God, same time.